Hello and welcome to Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the show where we pick either a VHS tape from my collection or Lindsay's collection. We talk about it and then we watch it. The Halloween season has sadly come to a close. We're into another season that happens usually in November. Every few years we get another edition in the storied James Bond franchise. Oh yeah. Spectre came out this last Friday. Uh, we're seeing that tonight. Uh, but before <laughs> we do, we wanted to record an episode on a very special entry in the Bond franchise. Probably my favorite one of them all. And that's 1989's License to Kill, starring Timothy Dalton. This is actually the only Bond film with a Bond that's not Pierce Brosnan or Daniel Craig that I've seen. Which is a shame. I really (laughs) wanted you to have a little more context before we got into this very strange, very unusual Bond film. But tell tell me about your experience with this franchise. Well, I mean, I was just thinking, I do love Sean Connery, and I was thinking, why haven't I seen his films? I haven't seen any of his Bond movies, but I've seen Highlander, and I love Highlander. Um, I mean, I grew up watching a lot of action movies, which included the uh, Pierce Brosnan Bond films, although I lost interest in Brosnan as a Bond with the Halle Berry one. That's a typical falling off point. Yeah. I saw all of them up to that point. I did not watch that one. I did also play, um, what was it, Goldeneye, the N64 game. Oh, yeah. The N64 game of Goldeneye was huge. And then, uh, what do you think of this new Bond? Or, well, I guess he's not a new Bond. He's been around since I was <laughs> six. But what do you think of Daniel Craig in the role? I love Daniel Craig in it. Casino Royale is great. Uh, the second one wasn't memorable. And then I, I really loved Skyfall. I thought that was a lot of, um, well, not fun, but it was interesting. To give some background to those who aren't familiar with James Bond, it was originally a series of books, sort of Cold War espionage novels by Ian Fleming. I think the first one, Casino Royale, was 1953. They were a big success, um, and starting in the 60s, we started to get the movies. And I could talk about this all day, but uh, I'll give you the quick recap. So Sean Connery was the original, starting with Dr. No. He's kind of your John Lennon, you know, he's kind of the one... (laughs) that everyone says is their favorite, uh, whether or not they mean it. It's a totally fine choice. It's the most popular Bond. He's kind of the one who planted the flag first. A lot of the um, things we associate with Bond came from him, Mm -hmm. like Bond, James Bond. It's worth noting, in my opinion, that I think that he made three great Bond films. I think his first three were very good. Dr. No from Russia With Love. Goldfinger, of course. But then his other ones, they kind of gloss over how crummy the second half of his career was. Oh, really? Uh, I never yeah. heard about that at all. Um, I mean, people have different thoughts about them. In my opinion, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, Diamonds Are Forever, these are weaker films in the franchise. And uh, in comes our second Bond, Mr. George Lazenby. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> it's, it's all right. He was an Australian model who only did one film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's worth noting that's a very good film. It's one of the best in the franchise. It's one of the best books that Ian Fleming wrote. But Lazenby is pretty stiff. He rightly does Aww. not have the best reputation. And he only did the one film. 
And then Connery swooped in to do one more. And then we got... The... Oh, that's weird. They did a trade-off? Yeah, they did kind of a trade-off. Uh, I think that they made Connery an offer that he couldn't refuse. Well, they gave him a ton of money. I think $8 million, which wow. in the early 70s is a huge amount of money. Plus all these incentives to come back. Yeah. I think they financed a project of his choosing and all these things. They really wanted him back. Was this one a success? Diamonds Are Forever was a commercial success. Okay. I think it's one of the weakest of the whole series, but... Yeah, because I was trying to figure out, did he learn from this, and that's why he refused to come back for Indiana Jones? I mean, it could be. I think that you, you have <laughs> something there. I think, honestly, one of my hang-ups with Sean Connery and why he's I don't go along with this concept that he's the best Bond is I feel like he had those three great films, those three classic Bond films, mm -hmm. and then it kind of seemed like he didn't want to be there anymore. And he had to be coaxed back again and again. I just kind of feel like we have really rosy memories of him. But if you go back and look at Diamonds Are Forever, it's not a good film. Uh. It has its fans. People are very nostalgic about it. I understand that. But it's not a good film. And then we get into a very interesting and very long period of Bond films with the Roger Moore era. Some of his best known ones are Live and Let Die, Spy Who Loved Me, For Your Eyes Only... And these are famously more campy, right? Yes, it was a very campy time. The Bond movies kind of reflected what was popular at the time. It, it was just kind of went along with the 70s and 80s that these were goofier movies. They were kind of more lighthearted. There wasn't a lot of weight to them. Okay. I really wanted to show you a Roger Moore Bond before <laughs> this. Because I think that, I mean, I, I love Roger Moore as Bond. It's a very, it's a different thing. It's its own thing. He's kind of like the Adam West Batman. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it doesn't take itself very seriously. That tells me a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, be, it relied really heavily on the gadgets and the quips. Even though the villain's plots became huge, like wiping out mankind and starting underwater cities or cities in space. Like, even though the villain's plots became really big, I felt like it had just become so cartoonish that you didn't really feel invested in what was happening. Interesting. Roger Moore was Bond well into his late 50s. He was really getting up there in years. And after, I believe, seven Bond films, he decided to hang up the tux and bring in a new era, which is our man, Timothy Dalton. Oh yeah, and for all you listeners out there, Sean has a picture of Timothy Dalton in his house. <laughs> Don't tell people that. <laughs> next, next to Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, two unsung heroes on the mantle. Yeah, on, on the fireplace mantle, not in his room. <laughs> <laughs> So, what makes Timothy Dalton so special? I feel like he's constantly sort of clumped in with Lazenby as sort of being a forgettable Bond. He only did two films, The Living Daylights in 87 and this one, License to Kill in 89. I think what really makes Timothy Dalton special, and we'll be talking a lot about this, is that he went back to sort of the source material, the Ian Fleming books. He said, look, if I'm going to do this, I want him to be a harder-edged Bond. I want him to be a three-dimensional character. And you definitely get that from his two movies, is that I wouldn't say he's a solemn Bond, but he definitely takes 
things much more seriously than any of the Bonds that came before him, even Sean Connery. And for the first time, you're kind of confronted with these questions like, wow, it must kind of suck to be James Bond. I mean, it, it no longer seems like a fun time to be this agent. It seems like mm -hmm. there's a lot of real loss and psychological damage that this character is carrying with him. And that was a totally new idea. And both of his movies were not well received at the time because this was just so radical and so unusual. I mean, I don't have as much experience with Bond as you do. When I was watching this, I was kind of surprised because it didn't feel like a Bond movie to me. And some of the Bond elements felt out of place, like suddenly there were gadgets, that sort of thing. This is not a popular choice. You either kind of love this one or hate it. But it definitely takes some huge departures from the normal Bond formula. And it's worth knowing that these movies had become very formulaic. This was the 16th Bond film, and they are very much etched into this formula, and this is kind of a disruptor. This one had kind of an unexpected ad that opened the tape. It was with John Cleese advertising Schweppes, talking about... Uh, how Schweppes doesn't belong with such violence as you have in Bond. And he was rallying against gratuitous violence in movies as, as violent things. things happened all around him. It was really macabre. And at the end, they shoot him full of holes, and he drinks some Schweppes, and Schweppes shoots out of the holes in his body like a cartoon character. I didn't really understand how that was promoting Schweppes, but it was kind of fun to watch. <laughs> I think that honestly it was kind of a reaction to this is a very controversial Bond movie in the sense that Bond movies are not normally this violent. It was and I think extremely violent. It was the first PG-13 Bond film, which granted that rating had just come on the scene uh, in the mid-80s. Originally rated R, and it had to make some trims to uh, to get in under... Um, and I think in the UK it got a 15 rating, which is kind of their equivalent of the R. This Schweppes ad was almost like a response to that. Like, look, Schweppes is a family soft drink. I think he says at one point. Yeah. Another thing that makes License to Kill kind of unusual is it's not Bond going off on a mission. That He's, he's usually assigned a mission by M, the head of MI6, and he has to go kind of on the globe-trotting thing. Mm -hmm. and He has a mission, but he's assigned it to himself. Yes, it's a self-assigned mission. Bond and his good friend CIA agent Felix Leiter capture this, this drug lord, Sanchez. And it's on the day of Felix's wedding. They interrupt the wedding to, to capture this drug lord. Um, but Sanchez escapes. He kills Felix's wife. There's pr actually, well, we could talk more about this later, but it's implied she was raped as well, which is extremely yeah, dark for that a Bond was movie. Really dark, but definitely implied. I, uh, we didn't discuss that at the time, and that was my impression of what had happened. Because Benicio del Toro, who plays the main henchman of Sanchez, says, We gave her a nice honeymoon. They find her splayed out on a bed. Yeah. Again, to give you some context, Three movies ago, we had Roger Moore dressed up like a clown in full clown makeup, then dressed up like a gorilla. He was swinging from vines doing Tarzan yodels. As James Bond? As James Bond. <laughs> there was also Moonraker where he was in space shooting laser guns. So right off the bat, we're completely grounded 
And we have this really brutal scene where Felix is fed to sharks and nearly killed. And granted, this is a series that has fed its fair share of people to sharks, but never <laughs> this graphically. Bond is horrified by this. He wants to catch Sanchez. He wants to get even. He wants revenge. He wants. He's out for revenge. This Bond is out for blood, 100%. He's frustrated that no one else wants to catch Sanchez. It seems like he's untouchable. He's he's fleed to a country that has no extradition. And so he goes rogue. He's uh, <laughs> His license to kill was taken away from him. His license to kill is revoked. And that's funny because <laughs> the original title of this movie was License Revoked. Uh, I'm glad they, they changed it to License to Kill. From there, it's just pretty much this really intricate revenge story and with the help of a few friends, he attempts to get even, not just kill Sanchez, but topple his entire organization yeah. from within, which is a very interesting way to go about it. And these few friends are Q. The Gadget Master. And a very beautiful CIA agent. Pam Bouvier. I liked Pam, because there are two potential Bond girls in this movie, one of whom I feel like could be written out. She's really just a device to get Bond where he needs to go. And then the other one, Miss Pam Bouvier, she actually is in on the action. She gets shot, she shoots at people, she flies planes. Lupe is Sanchez's lover that's trying to kind of get away from him because she realized she got herself in too deep. But other than that, they don't really add any more depth to her character. And it's funny because if you look at the cover of our VHS tape, Pam and Lupe have an equal sort of setting in the between Bond's legs on the cover. <laughs> But Lupe is much less an actual fully-fledged character. She's just a device. I think that you're right. Um, I had never really thought about it. I've watched <laughs> this movie so many times that I think I'm kind of desensitized to that sort of thing. But it is kind of a Bond staple to have two Bond girls. One of them is either like the villain's girlfriend or is just like less important. Yeah. And the other one is the one who stays with him till the end. I mean, that's what they had in Casino Royale too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even Casino Royale has a touch of that. This movie's interesting because they both are kind of an equal presence, although maybe not equally important to the storyline, but they both live agree. all the way through the film. Yeah. Usually one of them dies off out of plot convenience. And then Bond doesn't have to choose between yeah. them like he does in this film. And it's interesting that they even make him choose. Lupe's not even a choice. And he ended up he ends up giving her the brush off and is like, Yeah, you you hook up with a president. I'm gonna jump into this pool so I can make the moves <laughs> on Bouvier. I'm not as hard on Lupe as you are, but she's <laughs> definitely it is a little bit of a cliche. She's just trapped in this uh romance with this dangerous man. She's yeah. attracted to dangerous men, which is why she's interested in Bond. I am glad that Lupe survived because it's just another area where this movie kinda said, No, we're gonna do things our own way. We're yeah. gonna kinda because I feel like the easy way out is Sanchez gets jealous and kills her. I feel like that's what a Roger Moore or Sean Connery Bond film would do, is that she'd get killed off, mm -hmm. and that would just add further fuel to Bond's rampage. <laughs> uh, but this movie's smarter than that, and I think it's good that he does have to choose between them at the end. Another thing that all Bond films have is sort of a cold open kind of teaser sequence, kind of an action sequence. Yeah. I found it a little confusing because they just throw you right in the action, 
It's another one where I kind of like, it didn't feel like a Bond movie, because it's like, here he is hanging out with his friends, and they're rushing off in their wedding gear to go attack this guy, and then parachuting down to the, uh, back to the wedding ceremony like badasses, which is Bond-like. I think one of the things that surprised me was that he seemed to be a part of a team, whereas I usually think of 007 as like a solo actor. I think that what's different about this is it starts off not with Bond on a mission, but kind of on vacation attending yeah. a wedding of his friend. Just having fun. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a diehard thing where he's <laughs> he's caught unawares and he has to uh he has to be a part of the action and that's I think where the team thing comes yeah. in at the beginning. It's funny you bring up Die Hard, because when we were watching it, you were saying that you felt like Die Hard allowed or kind of prompted this movie to be more violent. All of the Bond films, I mean, this is a series that's been going on since the 60s, and our tastes have changed a lot since then. And I think that they always kind of reference whatever is popular at the time. Mm -hmm. Like you had Moonraker, which is a response to Star Wars. Live and Let Die is a response to movies like Shaft and like black exploitation movies. And if you look at what was popular at this time, it was more harder-edged action movies like uh, Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. And I think that's why it's grittier and bloodier. I think that's a big part of it. They even have some of the actors from Die Hard in it. Like yeah. Sanchez, uh, Robert Davi is one of the... Actually, both of the Agent Johnsons from Die Hard yeah. are in this. I have to point out about Robert Davi... I was convinced my entire life that he and Tommy Lee Jones were the same person. <laughs> so, you know, I never thought about their similarity, but I, I do see where you could think that. Yeah. They do have a similar presence. Because I was looking at the back of the VHS cover and I commented, oh, hey, look, it's Two-Face from Batman. And that leads us to another important element of any Bond film. I think any Bond film is only as strong as its villain. Oh, yeah. How do you think the villains were in this film? Let's start with Robert Davi as Sanchez. I, th I think he was a great villain, really, because he was just so cold-blooded. Like, he just thought about himself and money. And that was kind of his thing. And loyalty. He really stressed loyalty, but... It was just interesting. I also loved that he walked around. Like, a, lo a lot of great villains have their pet... Yeah. His was a lizard that wore a gold, what was it, a diamond bracelet as, yeah. a as its own collar. It's perched on his shoulder like a parrot, and it's just this iguana with a diamond necklace. I always loved that as a kid, that he had, he had a reptile as his pet. <laughs> I'm going to give the thumbs up to Sanchez. It's just so refreshing to have a Bond villain that's not out for world domination, doesn't have some elaborate plan to build cities on the moon or something crazy <laughs> like that. I think I like that he's just out to further his drug empire and he doesn't have some elaborate plan really that Bond is disrupting. Mm -hmm. I mean there's a, there's an element of that with the stinger missile thing but that's kind of thrown in last minute. I do like that he's more of a realistic villain. Yeah, and he is cold-blooded. Like oh, he yeah. threw Felix in with the sharks. Kind of more in spirit with the villains from the Ian Fleming novels. I always liked it more when the villains were kind of the mere image of Bond. Like if Bond wanted to become a, a drug baron, you know, he would still yeah. he would still be sort of this suave guy. If he wanted to put his talents towards crime, I feel like he would be something like Sanchez. Now, I think that's really interesting, Sean, because one of the things I was thinking while you were watching this and then kind of as I've continued to think about the movie was how 
Bond, so bent on revenge, didn't really seem like a hero. He was really not that different from the bad guys, except that we were sympathetic to him because we saw his friends die at the beginning. Yeah, he's very ruthless in this. He not only does he kill quite a few people, um, but he also sets up other people's deaths. Yeah. I also want to say one of the ways he killed someone was throwing him in a bin of maggots. Oh, yeah. And said, bon appetit. Yeah. He also, in that same aquarium sequence, he puts a hook around a guard's leg and dumps him into a pit of electric eels, which a little unrealistically then shoot off bright strobe lights as they electrocute him. He ends up also causing the death of um, some of his spy fellows. Some intentionally and others unintentionally, which I think is another interesting thing, that this is not a clean revenge scheme. He's actually interfering with legitimate operations against Sanchez by foreign governments, like the Hong Kong narcotics has, has this year, several years, they've had like this undercover operation going on that he's completely disrupted. And I like the idea that he's just kind of stumbling over all these other plots to get Sanchez in his bloodlust. Yeah, and it's never addressed by the film. Like, the film just ends with him making out with Bouvier in the pool. And they don't really have him kind of have to deal with it. Although, I mean, how do you have him deal with that? It's true. Um, I think, uh, like I said, this isn't a perfect film. It's my favorite Bond film, but it's not a perfect film. There's definitely more consequences for his actions than in a normal Bond film, but the amount of collateral damage (laughs) that he stacks up over the course of this, I mean, he could have started an international incident with the things that he did. Not just with Hong Kong, but you know, all over Latin America oh, yeah. and with the U.S. since he is a British agent. The ending scene, I'm not crazy about mm-hmm. that whole pool party sequence. And the winking fish, that's always bothered me too. decorative fish on the side that winks as the credits start to roll. That to me feels like kind of a vestigial part of a Roger Moore bond. Yeah. Where you'd, you'd, you'd need, like, some sort of thing to wink at you, in this case, literally, to let you know, oh, don't worry, it's just a Bond movie. But I would have liked that they'd committed to that grittiness all the way till the end. Yeah. I mean, that's where I felt like some of the cue scenes sort of disrupted the flow of the movie because they're kind of cute and goofy. What was the line? I can't remember the line. There's a line that he has. It's a sort of one-liner joke that doesn't fit with the flow of it either. The one-liners were kind of forced on Timothy Dalton. I feel like that's not the kind of Bond that he is. I mean, the Ian Fleming Bond never gave a quip mm-hmm. after killing someone. When Heller, another one of the villains, has been impaled on this forklift, Yeah. he says... Looks like it came to a dead end. Which, yeah. I mean, there's another, there's there's instances of that in Living Daylights also, where you could practically feel Dalton rolling his eyes, like, oh, why do I have to say these cheesy lines? But, um, I don't know, that's not a deal breaker for me, yeah. personally. I no, think I can not. look past that. This, this was a discussion we were having earlier where I was trying to make the argument that this film could be rewritten, like certain details could be rewritten, and you could change the characters' names, and it wouldn't necessarily be a Bond movie. You know, potentially maybe it would have been more successful, because then it would have been an action movie and not a Bond movie that didn't meet people's expectations of a Bond film. 
Yeah, you know, that's a legitimate criticism. It is such a departure from what had come before it. I'd say it did not feel like a Roger Moore Bond movie. I think you're right in that sense. But I think that it feels more like Ian Fleming's vision for Bond than anything that came before it to me. Interesting. And so, I don't know, I feel like you could either argue that this is not Bond or it's the only Bond, (laughs) I think is kind of one way to look at it. I would argue that Bond is in its DNA. I think that it has, I think that the way that it's structured, even though it deviates from the whole man on a mission thing, I think the fact that he is still out for a personal mission Mm -hmm. makes it feel like a Bond movie. I think the exotic locales, the gadgets, the Bond girls, I think all of that is very Bond. Tonally, it's nothing like anything that came before it. So I could see where you would say that. If it was rewritten to be some other action movie, even though this movie was a flop commercially, and we can talk more about that later, I think that it would have done even worse had it not been associated with such an established brand as Bond. There's still some villains for us to talk about. What did you think of young Benicio Del Toro? I was surprised by how young he was. He was 21 when he did this. Yeah, and he has a very unique look, but I was kind of surprised that I I thought, man, he's kind of handsome. That took me by surprise. You don't find Benicio Del Toro handsome anymore? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hope Uh. he doesn't hear this. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I thought he was a nice um, villain that was kind of added in to show a little bit of contrast to the main villain, because Benicio de Toro takes the violence to a whole nother level. It's like he lives for it. Yeah, he's very much the physical henchman that kind of does all the dirty work that Sanchez doesn't want to do. And he was the one that I felt afraid of. I didn't feel that Sanchez was scary, really, even though he was pretty cutthroat. Mm -hmm. Benicio de Toro was the one that kind of made me think, oh shit. Yeah, and there's that moment at the end when Bond is on the conveyor belt heading towards the shredding machine. Yeah. And he almost saves himself. I mean, the villain does that classic Bond thing of leaving the room and just assuming (laughs) that his plan to kill Bond went fine. But what I love about Benicio Del Toro's character is he goes back to make sure that he's been killed. And when he sees that he hasn't, he goes in to cut the strap so he falls into the machine. Which uh, does not go well for Benicio Del Toro. Well, he dies the way he planned for Bond to die. And I also loved his reaction to seeing Bouvier, because he Mm -hmm. was just kind of like, wait a minute, I killed you! Yeah. (laughs) Totally pissed him off. It was just kind of like, no, I need to finish you off. Well, he kind of laughs. He goes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I've memorized every line of this movie. Uh, Uh, Gosh, there's a lot of great villains in this movie. Um, There's also... Milton Crest, who runs the, I guess it's sort of a fish genetics lab, I think is the best way to really describe it. So he's sort of in charge of one of Sanchez's mini fronts. He's the one who owns the sharks that uh, almost eat Felix alive. (laughs) He meets a terrible end. And this is another another thing where we get into the morality of Bond. Does he go too far in this movie? Basically, Bond is trying to destroy Sanchez's operation from the inside. He's kind of preying on Sanchez's paranoia. Mm -hmm. And he creates a situation in which he frames this guy, Crest, 
for basically everything Bond has done. Yeah. And Sanchez kills him in probably the goriest death of the Bond franchise. It was awful. I just watched this because he's in a um, pressurized unit within the boat. Yeah. And there are switches that you can turn to up the pressure which Sanchez does, which Bond knew he would do, and ends up just blowing the man up. He just bursts like a red balloon. This is originally even more graphic. I think this is the scene that almost got the movie an R rating. Again, it's this sort of thing where, yeah, he was a bad guy, but was this a necessary move for Bond to make? Yeah. Like, did he need to go this far and and kind of throw this guy? I mean, I, I guess he was also trying to sort of cover his tracks. Yeah. And I realize these guys are all kind of tied into the drug trade, but he really does just brutally murder or get people murdered. And again, this is sort of a a trope of the Bond movies that you show how evil the bad guy is by him killing one of his own people. I feel like in License to Kill, there's actually a lot of weight to it. You don't normally see someone suffer on screen the way that Crest does. And it's very effective and kind of one of the most shocking moments of any of the Bond films, even Mm -hmm. the current uh, gritty Daniel Craig ones included. One thing that we haven't talked about is every Bond movie, and this even is true of the Daniel Craig ones, needs an opening number. It needs a big song (laughs) and a big opening title sequence. Yeah. And in this one, we get Gladys Knight singing License to Kill. What did you think? I enjoyed it. I actually have seen the music video thanks to you, like, (laughs) at least a month ago, because you're so into it. This is like a big, brassy, I, in my opinion, kind of classic Bond song. It's a, it's a fun number, especially with all the girls going by, and they're not animated. These are actual ladies dancing sexily. Yeah, it's it's actually the last of kind of the classic Bond titles um, that used real models, that used kind of that didn't use CGI mm-hmm. because that wasn't sort of a thing yet. And it is a little awkward at times. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely very 80s. It's got sort of this camera theme to it. Yeah. There's also, I noticed they were wearing tight, sheer tops, mm-hmm. which was really big at the time. Um, actually, Pam Bouvier is wearing one of those on the cover of the VHS, but uh, so you could see their nipples. I think in some of the title sequences for the Connery and Moore films, you you really saw a lot of skin in these opening numbers. But in the starting with the Brosnan era, they, it was all CGI, so they were you you I guess you both gained and lost. I think that the newer titles are kind of glossier. Yeah. But you lose out on kind of the silhouettes of the girls and that sort of thing. I do enjoy like the Skyfall opening. Oh yeah, that's really a great compelling. one. I think both of the Dalton Bonds have very underrated themes. Aha did the one for Living Daylights, and I think that's another really catchy one. This one I think is just classic. It reminds me of Shirley Bassey. I think Gladys Knight has such a great voice. It's just a really over-the-top, brassy song. It doesn't really jive with the tone of the movie. No. I mean, there's another song that closes out the film that I think was a big misstep, that Patti LaBelle song. No, yeah, that was not a good choice. Uh, Overall, I'd have to say that I I enjoy the the opening credits for this one. Not the best, not not by any means one of the best, uh, but it's still really good. 
This film did have some of the most intense, crazy, and very fun action sequences. There's one involving a lot of water and jumping between land, air, and sea. I mean, it's water skiing, but he has no skis. He's just using his feet. Yeah, the the barefoot water skiing (laughs) onto a plane and knocking out the pilots. I think that's one of the best action sequences in any of the Bond films. I think, I have to say, this was also then preceded by him going swimming underwater attacking this ship that contained uh, that they put all the cocaine into because they were transporting cocaine it was an exchange of money for drugs and he opens up this underwater ship and is just stabbing at the cocaine he doesn't really have an end game there he just wants to destroy the drugs because he's pissed off which is so badass i mean he (laughs) i mean he just he just seen another one of his friends killed uh, sharky usually Bond films when they try and do underwater stunt sequences it goes terribly um I think one of the worst offenders is Thunderball which just kind of devolves into this huge like underwater battle between all these scuba divers and you don't know what's going on but License to Kill their underwater stuff is amazing it's really well done this fight that he has again it's just tying into the whole like the the brutality of this movie that they're tearing off his mask (laughs) so he drowns and he just barely gets out out of it by harpooning uh, his way to the surface. Yeah. And we also have this masterful tanker truck sequence at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. Which involves, I know it came afterwards, but it just, this whole, that whole sequence makes me think of the Transporter movies. Oh, yeah. It does get a little crazy when he's, like, doing wheelies, and he does both a side wheelie with a 16-wheeler and a... The one that gets me is when... The truck just goes up on its back wheels. It's like, you know, when you're in a motorcycle and you rev up and you go on the back wheel, but he did that with a semi. (laughs) Yeah, which is impossible. I mean, I think think they built special Kenworth trucks to do that. But, you know, again, I give certain allowances for this movie because it really goes for it. It's kind of action fantasy. Yeah. Almost. Speaking of fantasy, kind of like how the women just fall for him instantly. They don't even have to know about him. It's just they take one look and bam. Yeah. And that's even true of the newest ones, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, as I think that Casino Royale did a, a better job of that, that over the course of the movie, he kind of seduces mm-hmm. Eva Green. But um, overall, I feel like that's still a big part of the yeah. movies. Yeah, and then going back to this kind of idea of action fantasy, when there's the showdown with the um, Hong Kong agents, Bond is attacked by them because he's messing up their operations, and they send in these... You you think, okay, maybe they're Hong Kong assassins, but they're cre- in the credits, they're listed as ninjas. They're clearly ninjas. They're, yeah, they're, they're supposed to be ninjas, and that's kind of like one of those things where they're maybe they're jumping on a trend and they're including ninjas just because they want to be current or something. It doesn't matter yeah. that ninjas are Japanese. You know, the ninjas never bothered me <laughs> until you pointed it out again. Like, it's just one of those things that I accepted. Like, yeah, Hong Kong ninjas. <laughs> that makes sense. But I think you're absolutely right. I think that ninja movies were very in vogue in the late 80s and early 90s. And I think the, the, this is just kind of... I can just see the Bond producers going, can we fit some ninjas in there somewhere? I think, I think this is also an element of people just... when 
people think of ninjas and they think of kung fu and they just blend it all together because it's like out in asia it's like when we watch surf ninjas and yeah they were blending the villain wore a japanese samurai costume but they were fighting in in, in like parts of thailand they do call the asians orientals in this movie Which but is i think un- that was fortunate i don't think that that was a pc thing yet do you or it, in the late 80s there was actually talk of oriental and like it being probably problematic back i think it dates back into the 70s but that was more an academic discussion so probably not a public thing yet so i want to talk a little bit more about timothy dalton how do you view his bond like i know that you like brosnan i know that you like daniel craig how do you sort of compare him to to those guys and you can spare my feelings (laughs) i've heard all the worst things about timothy dalton that he's boring that he's overly serious that he's not handsome enough for the role i reject all of those notions but (laughs) i'm curious to hear what you think about it well i one i never have told you that i liked pierce brosnan as bond i thought you did i think his movies are fun i never really took him seriously though i'm glad to hear you say that he's my least favorite bond yeah i I think they're fun to watch and i watched them as a kid but i i would not say he's a favorite i also think he was miscast in mamma mia but that's an entirely (laughs) different story I feel like Dalton was really, did very well in this kind of dramatic action role. I think he does have kind of a suave quality, but he's not that smooth with some of the trappings, like the one-liners and that sort of thing. Like, occasionally that felt forced. I felt he brought kind of a nice, raw emotionality to the role that was pretty good, and he was believable as a fighter. A lot of things that Daniel Craig is rightly praised for, you know, bringing the sense of menace and, like, physical threat back to the role and bringing that emotionality to it. I think you can see so much of that in Dalton in these earlier films. Yeah. And I think that he was really ahead of his time in that sense because audiences rejected his bond. They wanted more of the Roger Moore era. That's the kind of thing that they liked. And that's why there was a long gap, six years before he got Goldeneye, which a lot of people think of as like, oh, it's such a return to form, but I'm really depressed by Goldeneye just because <laughs> to me it's a return to formula. It's yeah. not, it's, it's back to... Nice play on words. <laughs> well, I mean, I, that, that's, that's just how I feel. I, it's like, yeah, it's entertaining, it's fine, but it just feels like they're checking through the boxes. Yeah. They're not trying to... But that's how those films feel. I think that's part of why, having grown up on the Pierce Brosnan films, I really didn't have much interest in pursuing the other Bonds, just because I kind of thought, oh, all the movies are like that. Yeah, it is interesting kind of talking about this now. I can kind of see a connection between the Dalton Bond and the Craig Bond. Another thing that I'm asked about, sort of with my championing of Dalton, is well, why don't I like Daniel Craig better? I mean, he's kind of doing what Dalton was trying to do, but in a more supportive atmosphere. Like, he's mm-hmm. clearly being allowed to do what he wants yeah. at the role and do a more serious Bond. I loved Casino Royale. I think that's a near-perfect Bond movie, mm-hmm. and it really holds up well. But I feel like they really misstepped after that. Quantum of Solace, like, they were aping like the Bourne movies and it's like and then we had Skyfall which was good but it was not up to the quality for me of Casino Royale and I feel like 
they had a great opportunity. Like, they revived the series after, again, Brosnan went too far with the comedy and the, mm-hmm. the craziness of Die Another Day. And it's like they had an opportunity to really rebuild Bond. But in my opinion, they've gotten one great Bond film out of his yeah. tenure. And I feel like his character has been inconsistent because of that. That's interesting. I feel like one another problem with with the newer ones is that because they've rebooted, they're a little uncomfortable with well, can we bring in the Goldfinger car? Like, can we bring in all these things from older movies? And it's kind of like they can't make up their mind if he's a brand new character or if he has a shared history. Again, like when we see Spectre, maybe some of this will be cleared up, but it seems like they don't have a really clear vision of what to do with Daniel Craig. They've got this amazing actor playing the role but they're kind of, I think that they're still recovering from really botching it with Quantum of Solace. It, that one just was not memorable. I do not remember events in that movie at all. I just remember him being in a grayish building running. <laughs> I think that sums up Quantum of Solace. <laughs> that's, that's all I remember. I think it's the worst offender uh, in terms of aping what's popular at the time. In the sense that they had this great movie with Casino Royale. They should have kept going in that direction. But then they were like, wait, these Bourne movies are really popular. Let's make it all shaky cam and really fast cuts like those movies. Well, and then they ruined the Bourne movies by creating that fourth one. Yeah, I mean, it's... A situation where they were trying to ape what was popular at the time, but unnecessarily. They had something, in my opinion, that was much better than Bourne with Casino Royale. Well, because they had made something, they tested it, and it was successful. So why didn't they just continue? But I don't know. I guess they felt like they had to change it up. I think that they got things back on track, but, you know, I think I'll always just be going back to License to Kill. <laughs> it's it's my favorite. I feel more interested in seeing other Bonds, just seeing the kind of striking difference, because I, I felt like, I think one of, one of the assumptions I had made was that Pierce Brosnan, his Bond was just kind of like the generic Bond, and that's what I would see if I watched the other ones. I, I agree so. that he's the generic Bond, but I don't <laughs> think he's like every other Bond. So I think that's my childhood assumption that's that's now been challenged. So I think it'd be interesting to see some of these others. Maybe not the Australian Bond. (laughs) Actually, you know, I gotta say, he's worth checking out. Honestly, if I was to recommend Bond films to someone, I would say you should start with one of the classic Sean Connery ones. I really like From Russia With Love, but Goldfinger is a little more accessible. That's kind of the classic one that everyone thinks of. Yeah. And I'd say, yeah, check out... Lazenby, check out Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Again, it's like really different and unusual. He's a little flat as Bond, but it's interesting that they went there and they they made that decision to just recast the role instead of... Because that sort of set a precedent for, oh, we can have any actor playing this part. It's also funny to me to think of listing out the different Bonds and how not all of them have been English. And he's supposed to be the epitome of the English action hero. Interestingly, Ian Fleming lived to see a couple of the Bond films come out. I think the first two... He was originally against casting Sean Connery because of his heavy Scottish brogue, but he ended up warming to him and he liked him so much that he wrote into one of the novels that he has Scottish ancestry. That's, that's a, really cute. Yeah, and so that's that. why in Skyfall his family estate is in the Scottish Highlands. 
That's really cute. The only Englishmen to actually play this role have been Roger Moore and Daniel Craig, because as we said, Connery was Scottish, Lazenby was Australian, and do you know what Dalton is? Welsh? Correct. Oh, He's a yeah. Welshman. <laughs> All right, you picked this one, Sean, so you have to go first. I'm deciding arbitrarily at this moment. <laughs> Buy it? Rent it or tape over it? I think I know what the answer is. Yep, tape over it. No, I'm kidding. It's a big buy it for me. I will defend this movie until the day I die. <laughs> this is my favorite Bond film. I will uh, challenge anyone who thinks that Dalton was a flat Bond. I think that not only is this my favorite of the series, but Dalton is my favorite actor to play the role. I think if you're a fan of the James Bond movies, you should go back and check out Dalton either Living Daylights or this one, it's a big recommend from me. What do you think? I'm going to say rent it. I really enjoyed it. I think it's fun to see if you like action movies. It's an interesting chapter in the Bond series to see. I'll take that as a win for Team Dalton. (laughs) (laughs) So next episode, we're bringing on a guest. We're going to have to hold off on dipping into Lindsay's collection my longtime friend, great guy, great fan of movies, Philip Laird will be on the show with a very unusual movie from his childhood. What are we watching? Adventures in Dinosaur City. Do you know what this movie is? Nope, never heard of it at all, except <laughs> okay. from Phil. He somehow went our whole childhood. I've known Philip since kindergarten. He's the friend of mine who, of course, we made all those movies with, the Attack of the Flesh-Eating Beetles. We even made a dinosaur movie called Triassic Park. What? And for some reason, in all our time together, he never brought up the fact that he loves this crazy movie with dinosaur puppets and crazy, I guess, cavemen? I don't know. It looks like a crazy, crazy movie. I can't wait to watch it. And I can't wait for you, the listener, to hear all about Philip's Dinosaur City. And hear all the imitations of the horrible character voices. Oh yes, I'm sure that will happen. (laughs) I'd like to thank our good, good friend Will Price for use of his song, Mandatory Groove. You know where to find him, soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. If you're not sure how to spell Gargantulon, go to our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. There's a link to uh, Will's soundcloud there you can also find more info about our podcast you can find links to subscribe on itunes or on soundcloud rate us and review us on itunes we'd love to hear any feedback you can also email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com so that's it for tapeheads i've been sean and i've been Lindsay. until next time